Praise the Lord. There are handouts on the uh, podium that's in front of you just to let you know. If you have any questions regarding the book of Revelation, uh, things maybe we haven't covered yet, um, and if we have time, we'll look at those as we are wrapping this up. We have four Wednesday nights to go, and uh, so just write legibly. You can turn those in. You can leave them in the front, front seat here whatever, and those will be available in the next couple of weeks uh, for that. And uh, I'm not saying I got the answers, but if you got questions, you can ask them. All right. Uh, also, there are some free lapel pins back there on the communion table as you're walking in. It simply says, Walk with Jesus, uh, given to us by Rever uh, Resurrection Street Ministry, Bill and Charlene, who were here Sunday. It's the ones that we do food drives for, as well as the water drive this month. And we want to fill that box back there with cases of water. And so uh, appreciate any and all help with that. Um, Jill, if you can hear me. She was out in the foyer a little bit ago. I'm assuming because there's no one back there that we are being recorded. I want to make sure that we are. We have not missed a lesson yet. Everything, if you've missed something, everything is on the internet thus far. And so... Um, I don't want to miss out on that. Just, I think it should be recording, Greg, if you just want to. I don't know how to check it. I've never done it. I don't know, want to know how to do it. How many know that uh, the more you know, the more you're responsible for? All right. And so we're good. Thank you. And so he's giving me the thumbs up. Uh, I don't need to know how to uh, record or run the sound system as well as everything else. I've been frustrated last couple. This is all get edited out. Last few weeks. I noticed that our church grass was, was staying brown and not greening up, whereas home it's all green now, and I've mowed it once. And it's like, okay, the irrigation thing's not working right, and I've reset it. I've, re, I've done everything I know how to do, and I spent way too much time on it. So finally today, the landscapers replaced it, and hopefully it's going to work in the morning. I'll know when I get here if the pavement's wet. And so um, I've been trying to manually do it when I can, but then it doesn't work. I'll do it, then it'll work a day, then it won't work. That's pretty frustrating. And so a new one's been installed, and hopefully that will take care of it. But uh, it's uh, always wonderful. And that thing's 20-some years old, so we got our use out of it. But it's just like, okay, um, it's nice when things work. Amen? All right. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. We are tonight going to talk about the millennium and the final judgment. We are winding this down. We have three chapters left, 20, 21, and 22. And so tonight, we're going to focus on chapter 20. First of all, in the first six verses, talking about the millennium. And we'll have talk about the three views on the millennium, as well as some characteristics, six characteristics on the millennium. And then we'll talk about the final judgment. And so first of all, reading from Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that means Satan's not all powerful, all right? God's angels are more powerful than God's fallen angel, all right? So he seized the angel, uh, the dragon, excuse me, that in all these names, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, so we got dragon, serpent, devil, Satan, all names pertaining to Lucifer, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw the, him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him 
to keep him from doing what he does best, and that is deceiving people, deceiving the nations or the peoples anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I'm reading that, rereading it. It's like, God, why can't you just leave him there? You know, why just can't, he's going to end up there. Why just can't you leave him there? But it's, that's all thrones on which were seated those who had given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and regained or reigned, I should say, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed are, blessed are and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. I'm going to pause right there. We'll pick up in a little bit at verse 7 once we talk about uh, the first part on your outline, the millennium. Uh, you recall if you were here for those lessons in Daniel chapter 2, uh, that Daniel showed that the present world system will be and must be destroyed. We talked about that, how, guess what? The world's not going to slowly get better and better. It's going to get worse and worse. All right, Scripture says it's going to get worse and worse. In fact, it's going to get so bad that God must stop the process before all are lost, Matthew 24, 22. Well, Daniel, you recall, saw a large rock uh, strike the feet of the statue, uh, Daniel 2, 34 and, and 44 and 45. The rock, you recall, smashed the world kingdoms to pieces. Then the rock grew to be a kingdom. It was like a mountain that, was feel, that filled the whole earth. Isaiah prophesied that nothing will harm or destroy in God's entire holy mountain, Isaiah 11, verse 9. That is, his kingdom will be safe. His kingdom will be peaceful throughout the earth. And so, first of all, we're going to consider in this then the three views on the millennium. Uh, the word millennium comes from two Latin words. The first one is milli, M-I-L-L-E, meaning a thousand or one thousand, and, and annus, meaning our annual, we get our word annual from, meaning year. It refers to the period of one thousand years uh, mentioned five times in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 6. So this thousand-year period is mentioned five times over and over again. Now, three common views, and really, why do we study this? Why do we want to know about this? Well, basically, what people believe about that thousand-year rule and reign affects the way they interpret this book. And so it's good to consider the views. So the first one is the amillennial view, uh, amillennium. Uh, joining the word a to the beginning of a word is like putting the word no in front of it. For example, a theist is one who believes in God. An atheist, do you see the difference there? An atheist is one who believes there is no God. If you take the word apathy, A for apathy is without. Pathy is pathos, pathos meaning without passion. A person who is, who is with apathy is, is without passion. Well, we have a millennium here. The word an amillennialist is a person who believes there will be no millennium on earth, even though we're told five times there will be. 
All right. And so an amillennialist is simply a person who believes there will be no millennium on earth. Uh, those who do not believe in the millennium on earth really have a problem. And the problem is how to interpret the many verses throughout God's word about the nation of Israel. For example, God has promised to restore uh, Israel as a nation. If you want to take time sometime on your own, read Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel wrote of a time when Israel had been captured and scattered. But you recall back in 1948, Israel became a nation again. Uh, those who do not believe in the millennium on earth try to spiritualize chapters like Ezekiel 36. In other words, they try to make the chapter refer to heaven or the church, or, or to, or to the church. Uh, but history has proved again and again that Ezekiel 36 refers to the nation of Israel on earth. So in the millennium, the Jews will live in Israel. History will also prove that Christ will reign on earth for 1,000 years. Now, the return of the Jews to Israel and the reign of Christ on earth are clear prophecies of both Old and New Testaments. Therefore, we reject the amillennial view that says neither of these will happen. And so, amillennium, nope, don't believe that. Then we go on to the second view called postmillennium. The word post can mean after. A, a post-millennialist believes that Jesus will return after the millennium or the thousand-year rule and reign. Uh, but the millennium is a thousand years of peace. Now, the Bible does not teach that we will have a thousand years of peace before Jesus returns. Now, search the scriptures. They prophesy that the earth will get worse and worse, as I just said, Evil is going to increase, not decrease. Nation will rise against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. The last days we are living in will not be peaceful. There will be terrible times. Now, again, read again what Paul the Apostle had to say about the last days. I mean, if we look around, my question is, is the earth becoming more holy and more peaceful? Uh, no, it's not. All right. Uh, I have never seen in my lifetime so much chaos, so much turmoil, and people uh, uh, even now living in fear and not knowing what to do. And, and basically is this, there cannot be a thousand years of peace while Satan is free. All right, it's not going to happen. That's why God will bind the devil during the millennium, as I just read in verses 1 through 3. Basically, understand it this way, there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Therefore, we do not agree with the post-millennial view. All right, so one and two, nope, check, you know, X them off. Now we come to what we call the pre-millennial view. Pre means, as post means after, pre means before. A pre-millennialist believes that Jesus will return before the thousand years before the millennium. Uh, a premillennial, as premillennialists, we interpret the Old Testament and the New Testament as literal as we can, as possible. In other words, we don't spiritualize uh, God's word unless the, unless the text kind of demands it. You know, uh, For example, the Bible says that God will gather the Jews back to their homeland. 
Therefore, we believe the Jews return to uh, their land of Israel. We do not interpret Israel to mean heaven or the church, as the previous views mentioned. Likewise, we seek the easiest way to interpret Revelation, which is one reason that we place the return of Christ and the resurrection of believers uh, before the millennium. Uh, we recognize that, honestly, believers uh, don't agree on all, on all these views, and that's okay. It's not a salvation issue. We don't come against them if they believe differently from us. Uh, but we do look at these views and believe that the futurist and pre-millennial uh, view are the most biblical. Uh, these views agree with the parables of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. They encourage us to live ready for His return, that His return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And so these views really encourage us also to be uh, faithful in spreading the gospel to others. And so we have the three views on the millennium. We are uh, pre, we believe the pre-millennial view. All right, does that make sense to everybody? All right, number one, the first part. Now let's talk about some characteristics. This is where it gets interesting. Some characteristics of the millennium. And I have six of them laid out for you there based on Revelation 21 through 6. First of all, the Lord and His kingdom will be on earth. Uh, Zechariah 14, 9, the Jews thought Jesus would rule when He came the first time. You recall they expected Him to conquer the Romans, but He came the first time not to conquer and, and to be this ruler that was going to take over governments or whatever. The first time he came was to die for our sins. The first time he came was to, was to allow his life to become the sacrifice for ours in our place. But when he returns, he is not coming to die for our sins. He's coming to rule and to reign. All right, he is going to rule on the earth. Then, during that time, we can stop praying, come Lord Jesus, because he'll be here. All right, we can stop praying your kingdom come because his kingdom has come. It will be here. We can stop praying, Lord, your will be done because he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. His will will be done. All I can say is hallelujah. All right, and so that's going to happen. He, his kingdom will be on earth. Second secondly, it's going to be a time of peace. Nation will not rise against nation. The creation will stop groaning. All right? There will be peace between mankind in all relationships. Isaiah prophesied the millennial reign of Christ. I'm just going to read to you Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 from the English Standard Version. It says, There shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is prophesying of Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And, and, and most Christians get this wrong, and I always try to make sure we understand it. When, I'm going to have you fill in the blank out loud. The, the lion shall lie with the... Huh? Say it again. Lamb. Thank you. The lion, here it is, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. We always say the lion and the lamb. It's the wolf and the lamb. How many didn't know that? How many are glad you came tonight that you not know? The wolf. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And, and we, we see pictures, we put them in our house, in our homes, the lion and the lamb. The, well, it's, it's a little bit off, okay? Now, I say all that to say, I'll keep continue on, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. Cattle and bears don't get along. I have a friend in Montana, Steve Skelton. If you're listening, Steve, this is for you. I told him about these studies in this last week. He's going to hopefully uh, sign up and, and listen to them online. But he's, uh, he, got lots of, he got lots of bears, grizzly bears, on his property in Montana. And he just got rid of all of his sheep just recently in the last few months. And he is now getting back into uh, the calves and the, and the cattle. And it's like, okay, in that day, um, um, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Again, a lion doesn't usually eat straw, all right? The nursing child shall play over the hole, the cobra, the snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Quick question. Where in the sea is there not water? Everywhere there's water. And so the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere. That's the analogy here. And so just as you see a, a body of water, a body, you know, an ocean or whatever, you know it's full of water. There's no place in that sea or the ocean or that lake or whatever where there's not water. Otherwise, it wouldn't be what it is. And so just as that is true, so the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, going through that then, I'm just saying it'll be a time of incredible peace. Even, this is so cool, even the Jews... And the Arabs will be friends in the millennium. Isaiah 19, check this out, 23 and 25. Uh, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to, the Assyri to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day Israel will be, will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. 
Friends, don't miss what Isaiah is saying there. It's one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. It's a statement about the peace uh, between God and men. There's going to be a time of, of peace during this thousand-year reign, the millennium. Thirdly, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Once again, there can be no lasting peace on earth until God binds Satan. The devil will continue to lie, to steal, kill, and destroy until God binds him. Satan will not change. Earth will be full of problems as long as the serpent is loose. Our chief foe has always been Satan. Now, when Jesus died, his enemies tried to seal the tomb, but they could not keep him locked in. He came out in God's time after three days, but I'm here to tell you, when God locks Satan in the abyss, he will not get out for a thousand years. Once again, do not underestimate the power of the devil, but don't overestimate his power as well. He is not Christ's equal. He is not God's equal. He is a created being, and what God says goes. Amen? That, that ought to get you excited. I mean, if your wood's wet, it still should light a fire. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. So, so God is not going to let him out for a thousand years, and I don't know why, but God, at the end of 1,000 years, then unlocks the door and, and lets him out. Now, number three, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Uh, and, and so because of that, also the peace on earth and the reign of Christ and et cetera. Number four, fourth, the first resurrection will take place. Going back to Revelation uh, verses four through six, I saw thrones on earth uh, which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of, uh, the, rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, once again, who rises at the first resurrection? Well, Revelation 24 through 6, I just read, focuses on believers who were killed in the tribulation. It does not mention specifically the saints of the Old Testament, and it does not mention believers who died a natural death before the tribulation. Now, we believe the dead in Christ and living believers went up in the rapture. We talked about this previously. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Now, perhaps Old Testament believers were resurrected then also. At the latest, Old Testament believers seem to rise before the millennium. Why do I say that? Because the resurrection after the millennium appears only for sinners, not for saints. Now, we are sure 
that there are resurrections before the first resurrection of Revelation 24 through 6. For example, let me give you a few biblical examples. The widow of Nain's son was resurrected from the dead. Uh, Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. Many others were resurrected from the dead when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 52 and 53. Finally, Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead. So my question is, then why is the resurrection of Revelation 20, 4 through 6, called the first resurrection? Well, it is the first in relation to the, is the first in relation to the one that comes after. In other words, there are two resurrections associated with the millennium. The first resurrection comes before the 1,000 years. The second resurrection comes after the 1,000 years or after the millennium, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Now, you call also Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel spoke of two different groups of people who would rise from the grave. Daniel 12, 2 says, Multitudes who slept in the dust of the earth will awake. Some, here it is, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Daniel no doubt did not see the thousand-year valley between the two groups, the two resurrections. Likewise, Jesus also spoke of two distinct groups who arise from death. John 5.29 says, Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So once again, we have the two resurrections. Now, on earth... The Lord did not choose to reveal the gap between these two resurrections. But through John, Jesus reveals to us that there are a thousand years between the resurrections of the righteous and the wicked. Now, John doesn't contradict Daniel or Jesus, but God allows him to give us a little more specific uh, in, in the details of, of what's going on. Uh, as we approach the end of days, keep in mind that God reveals more and more to us as we approach the end. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. In other words, as time goes on, more will be revealed. That's what I'm saying. So number four, the first resurrection will take place. Uh, the fifth thing here, the, sixth, the fifth characteristic, is that the Jews will be restored to their God and their land. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 29, it says this, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone, uh, from you the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You'll live in the land I gave your forefathers. You'll be my people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And that's Ezekiel 36, 24 through 29. 
This is when God will simply complete the six things of Daniel's prophecy. We talked about that maybe a few months back. And he will finish, number one, he will finish transgression. Number two, he'll put an end to sin. Thirdly, he'll atone for wickedness. Fourthly, he'll bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, he'll seal up vision and prophecy. And number six, he'll anoint the Most High, Daniel 9, 24. This is the time when Israel will be saved, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Number five, the Jews will be restored to their God and their land. And number six, the sixth characteristic, Christ will appoint judges over the earth. Now the question then is, is, well, who will be these judges? Maybe, perhaps they'll include the 12 apostles because Jesus, after all, promised they would sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28 and Luke 22, 28 through 30. Also, he promised to reward faithful servants, Luke 19, 17. Likewise, he promises that overcomers will rule the nations, and that is Revelation 2, 26 and 27, as well as Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Now, who will the judges rule over in the millennium? Well, it appears that when Jesus returns, he kills all who have the mark of the beast. Talked about this in Revelation chapter 14, as well as chapter 19. Uh, it also appears that there are many on earth who are not destroyed in Armageddon. Now keep this in mind as well. These may include Jews whom God put out of the serpent's reach, Revelation 12, 14. It may also include others who survive the tribulation without taking the mark of the beast. Interesting. Zechariah prophesied about people of all nations who lived after Armageddon. Zechariah 14 verse 16 says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, one thing is clear, there are still many unbelievers on earth at the end of the millennium. A thousand years has happened. There are still many unbelievers on earth at the end of this time. They rebel. And this is what I don't get. I, I, I don't get this, and I'll just share it this way. Um, you're living on earth. Uh, Satan has been bound. There's no deception. There's no temptation. Why would anybody who lived in this environment then want to follow Satan at the end of a thousand years? That makes no sense to me, but then I have to go back to in the beginning when Satan himself was created as an angelic being who, who resided in a perfect environment, and yet because of pride, arrogance, uh, because of, of wanting his will and not God's, he fell from heaven. He fell from grace, if you will, and, and in that perfect environment. Here we are living in a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. I mean, you can't ask for a better leader. You know, we're not going to vote on him. We don't need to vote on him. He's the best leader this world has ever known, okay? But, but yet people uh, will be given the choice. Do you want to follow God and live for God, or do you want to follow Satan? Well, Satan's released and somehow he convinces, we'll get in this a little bit in, in verses 7 on, but he, he convinces people, he deceives, he lies, and convinces people 
even at the end of the millennium when he's released for a short period of time to, to, be, to follow him. And it's like, hello, don't you see that? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? And yet today we have all kinds of people who know God's word, who know what God's word says, who, who understand maybe in part what's going to be happening, who still choose even today not to follow God. But I just scratched my head. I'm thinking, wow. But it shows me and it shows us the hardness of man's heart. And it also shows us that God gives people free will and the ability to choose. But make sure when you choose, you choose wisely. You choose wisely. All right? So that's, that's that part. Um, I, I just, I scratch my head and going, wow, it's just, it amazes me how, how hard man's heart can, heart can be. We go on, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, here it is, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive, once again, what he does, to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. And so in number, this is not a small number that follows Satan at the end of the millennium. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, as speaking of Jerusalem. But fire, I love this, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I don't like it that people are destroyed, but you know, people that think they're going to you know, outwit God and outdo God, it's like, buddy, you don't understand. You know, this is the end of those that follow Satan. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. By the way, God's keeping good records. You can be assured of that. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he'll, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we'll talk about the final judgment in the bottom of your page there. You can see on the back of your page uh, some charts that we'll be referring to as well as we walk through that. Uh, it helps just gives you a little visual on that. But uh, first of all, um, we're going to study what happened after the millennium for a thousand years. As you, know, as you know, Jesus ruled on earth. He ruled with a rod of iron. 
Uh, with justice shall not the judge of all the earth do right, the Bible says. He will do right. Peace flowed like a great river across the earth. There was peace. There was prosperity. There was plenty. Uh, there was not one murder in the millennium. No one was harmed or destroyed throughout the kingdom of God on earth. God's will was done. The lion shall lie down with the wolf, the cow, the bear. All right, uh, no one's harmed, everything is good, God's will was done, Satan was locked in the abyss, uh, there was no, no one to lead people into temptation, I mean, everyone knew about God, as the water covers the earth is the knowledge of God, conditions on earth were almost perfect, but then someone, we're not given a name, someone unlocked the abyss, Satan was free for his very last time, and so John emphasizes then five great truths after the thousand golden years. Truth number one is A, there's only one way to change a person. Now, people have different theories about why humans sin. For example, an educator, an educator uh, may think that sin is due to lack of knowledge and we have to educate people. I'm not saying you do as an educator, but I'm saying uh, they think that education is the solution to man's problems. You know, teach that criminal that murder is wrong, some say, and he'll not kill anymore. Well, uh, we'll see about that. Uh, so an educator, a social worker... May, may say that circumstances causes a person's sins. If we can move that criminal person to a different environment, a better neighborhood, take that youth away from those evil friends, well, then that's, that's going to help them out. You take away those influences. Uh, and there might be some truth to that approach because bad company does corrupt good character, uh, but, but sinners' problems are deeper than their friends. An economist might say that money is the answer to people's problems. Give that thief all the money he or she needs, then the robber will not want to steal from others. I, I've seen this. I've seen comments by the former mayor of, of Chicago regarding this, uh, New York. I, I've seen some idiotic, stupidic thing, uh, stupid things said about the criminal element, even in the uh, in the 2020 summer of that summer of people destroying stuff and just let them be you know it's like come on people you know or we can throw money at this uh guess what uh give that man all, all the money he needs and they won't do what they're doing well that robber may not want to steal from others but they're going to still steal from somebody you know uh, basically the eyes of mankind are never satisfied a right or religious person might blame everything on the devil you know the devil made him do it is a popular saying uh, well, Satan indeed leads some into temptation, but our problem is closer than Satan. Now, as I said, a thousand years of living in an almost perfect earth doesn't change the heart of people. Look at what happens at the end of the millennium. A multitude like the sand of the seashore follows Satan, verse 8. They choose evil when they get their first chance. Now, our problem is not our circumstances. Our problem is not outside of us. To discover your problem, look in the mirror. Each one of us contains the problem within. Each one of us has a heart that must be changed. Bottom line is that all of mankind, no matter what period of time they live in, all of mankind needs a savior, all right? 
Uh, only Jesus can change a person from a sinner into a saint. It is the heart. It is the heart that needs to be changed. And so even after they live in this perfect environment for all these years, uh, they still need to choose toward the end. Uh, B, fifth, uh, second truth. There's only one option for those who reject the truth. Revelation 27 and 8, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Now, the scriptures mention again Gog and Magog in relation really to two battles. We talked about this last time. Ezekiel 38 and 39 also mentions Gog and Magog in relation to Armageddon before the millennium. Now, 1,000 years later, Gog and Magog simply represent the nations in the four corners of the earth. You recall that John uses Babylon as, you know, to represent Rome and ungodly cities. You know, that was the analogy. Uh, and then he uses, John uses Gog and Magog to literally represent all ungodly nations, ungodly people. Now, the important lesson is, is this. It's a lesson about deceit. It's amazing that Satan will come out of the abyss again to fight against God. I mean, don't you know that you couldn't get out for a thousand years? Don't you know that that was God's doing? Don't you know that an angel bound you and put you in there and, and locked the door and took the key away kind of thing? I mean, uh, but, but somehow it only took one angel to lock him in the abyss. Now, does the devil think that the angel cannot lock him up again? You know, what, what's going through his, his deceived mind, if you will? All right. How does he think the door to the abyss opened for him to get out? You know, he didn't get it. He didn't open it. He knows it was locked from the outside. He probably tried a million times to open it from the inside. Does he believe he himself broke the door open? You know, why will Satan be so foolish as to come out and fight against God once again? Why? Because he is deceived. As I heard a pastor say years ago, and I borrowed this and made it my own. The problem with deception is that it's so deceiving. Very simple, very true. All right. And that's, that's the problem here. He believes, Satan believes his own lies. He still believes he can defeat God. He has told so many lies that he believes them. He has rejected the truth, therefore what is left for him to believe? Lies. Some refuse even today to follow the truth. The only option they have left is to follow a liar. Many today who are in the cults were once in good churches. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, Romans chapter 125. One of the saddest things, honestly, about, following, about not following truth is that the only remaining leader is deceit. And deceit only knows a path to destruction. A good little illustration. Ethan Allen was an unbeliever. He was a famous soldier who often spoke against Christianity. Well, one day he stood beside the bed of his dying daughter. She had a question to ask him, Daddy, I am dying. 
Mother says there is a Savior in the heaven, but you laugh at such things. Now I must make my final decision before I die. Which of you shall I believe? Shall I accept my mother's Savior, or shall I accept your unbelief? And the strong soldier, her dad, began to sob. His last words to her contains wisdom for all of us, for he said, My dear, it would be better to die in your mother's faith than in your father's unbelief. Give your heart to Jesus, he said. Wow. Good illustration. Only one option for those who reject the truth. C, there is only one judge and only one great white throne. John told us in his gospel that Jesus Christ is the judge on the throne. John 5.22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. There's a story, also a story about a judge who once saved a man's life. The judge pulled the man out of a river. He was drowning. Later, this man was brought then before the judge, the same judge in court. And the man recognized the judge, and he smiled and says, Judge, remember me? I'm the man that you saved by pulling me out of the river. And the judge says, yeah, I remember you, but things are different now. Back then I was your savior. Now I'm your judge. One day a loving savior will be a severe judge. There is only one judge and one throne on judgment day, and there is only one place to stand. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, Revelation 20:12. D, there is only one book that contains the names of God's children. Now, there's lots of books mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, the Lamb's book of life contains the names of those who receive and serve the Lamb. The other books are records of people's deeds. There is a record. And the Bible contains several verses about judgment. Some of these verses are general, Daniel 12, Matthew 16, John 5. That is, why, that is what they say about judgments and rewards apply to all judgments. These verses, though, do not reveal the gap between the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Rather, they only talk about the theme of judgment. Similarly, the prophets wrote about the theme of the coming of Christ. They did not separate his second coming from his first coming. From a distance, the two comings of Christ looked like one coming. In other words, his two comings were like two mountains that kind of blended together into one. Thus the Jews were confused when Christ came the first time because, as I said, they expected him to rule the earth. Now we realize that Christ came to suffer the first time. He will rule at the second coming. All right, likewise, there is more than one judgment. It appears that there are at least three resurrections and three judgments. John has clearly told us that those who are blessed and holy rise before the millennium. He describes two groups of people in Revelation chapter 24 through 6. First, John sees people sitting on thrones, as we talked about Revelation 20 verse 4. These are people who have been resurrected. They have been given resurrected bodies. I'm looking for a skinnier one when I get there, amen? 
All right? They, they include the 12 apostles and all believers of the church age. All right? Uh, and we talked about the rapture, etc. Uh, second, John sees the souls of the tribulation saints, Revelation 24. He refers to them as souls because they have not yet been given their resurrected bodies. Then they come to life, Revelation 20, 40, 4, 24. That is, they rise from the dead and receive new bodies. These also reign with Christ for a thousand years. Thirdly, after the millennium, there is another judgment. Whom is Jesus judging? Why are people being judged for their deeds at the great white throne? Well, some will receive rewards. And what's the purpose of this judgment? Well, the great white throne judgment seems to be only for sinners. Now, for saints, we're going to be judged not based on our salvation, but what we did with our lives at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll get to that in Corinthians. But uh, that's the judgment. So the great white throne judgment seems to be only for sinners. Uh, many saints stood before Christ for rewards long before this. Uh, some were rewarded with positions of ruling for the millennium. The dead were blessed and, and holy arose no later than the first resurrection. Now the Bible is not clear about the time of judgment for those saved in the millennium. Perhaps they are still living at the end of the millennium. In, in contrast, the great white throne judgment is for the dead. Revelation 20, 12 and 15. 12 through 15. Now, all, this is where the chart comes in handy on the back of your outline. If you look at that, all who stand before the great white throne seem to be lost. They are being judged to see how much they'll be punished. Some will suffer less than others, but all will be punished for eternity. One set of books is open to determine how much to punish each person for his or her deeds. Now, questions asked. Why is the book of life opened? Well, first, to confirm that a person did not belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, to show that a person was not an overcomer. Revelation 3, 5. Second, to emphasize to all of John's readers and hearers that there is only one way to escape the lake of fire and the damnation of hell. That is, a person must receive and follow Jesus Christ. Period. There's only one process for the small and the great. Think about this. On that day, a Caesar will stand beside a beggar. A teacher will stand behind, uh, beside a student. An employer will stand beside a worker. A parent will stand beside a child. A president will stand beside a voter. The worst murderer will stand beside a common thief. Some who helped the poor will stand beside the rich and selfish. Nero, Pilate, Plato, Herodias, and Salome will be there. Hitler, Judas, and Balaam will be there. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and haze gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. 
People today think they're getting away with things or getting that, that they haven't been found out yet, things they've done. Guess what? God, God's books are accurate. Man's books might not be accurate, but I can guarantee you God is keeping perfect record of mankind. All right? It is not the absence of good works that brings judgment. It's the absence of the person's name in the book of life. For Revelation 20, 15, I repeat, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is not the presence of evil works that brings judgment. All have sinned. Many of earth's greatest sinners have their names in the book of life because they repented of their sin and had become followers of Christ. Now, John does not attempt to answer all the questions that we might have about the lost. For example, he does not give us the details about the Old Testament believers. He does not give us details about those who never heard the gospel. But be assured, God is a just judge. He will answer the questions that are too hard for us. But John emphasizes one truth. To escape the lake of fire and live forever, your name better be written in the book of life. This occurs when a person receives Christ. As believers remain in Christ, their names remain in the book of life. As Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. That is eternal security, if you will. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. Final point is this, and I close with this. E. There is only one final place for all who refuse the Lamb. Now, it saddens us to talk about the lake of fire. God takes no pleasure. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18, 23. The lake of fire is a subject, honestly, without joy. Still, it's a subject we must face because Jesus talked a lot about hell. He knew how bad it was, and so he warned people about it. He uses the word Gehenna to describe the final place of the wicked. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, is a word from the Aramaic language. It refers to a valley southwest of Jerusalem. It was literally a city dump where the Jews threw their trash. Gehenna smelled bad because of the rotting food, the worms, the trash, but it also smelled bad because the fire never went out. It was continuously burning. If you, as I did, grew up, there was a city dump outside the town, little town of Hospers. We'd throw our stuff there, but it was like burning all the time. It stunk and everything else. Rats, I remember that, going with your dad, with Grandpa Oldenkamp, to throw stuff out there. But basically, Gehenna was that city dump. There was always a fire burning there. And so Jesus used that city dump, if you will, where the fire was always at, where, where always there was a stench there. He used that as an example of what hell was like. The bad smell and the fire reminded him of the stinking sulfur and the fires of hell. The lake of fire is more terrible than we can imagine. It will be a place, biblically, it will be a place of eternal trials, torment, and weeping. 
people will grind their teeth in pain. It is a furnace of fire forever. It'll be the final home of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. It will be the eternal home of everyone whose name is not written in the book of life. God will even throw death and Hades into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. That is, they will not be found in any other place. The lake of fire, verse 14 says, is the second death. Spiritual death is separating is separation from God. Those who experience the second death will be separated from God forever and ever. All of us have experienced the first death in that our first death or our separation from God came because of sin, the wages of sin being that of death. Now, our sins have separated us from God. He is holy and God cannot fellowship with sin or with sinners who have not repented of their sin. Uh, but Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not work in those who are disobedient. But through Christ, Jesus Christ, God forgave us of our sins. He has cleansed us. He has brought us back to fellowship with Him. We are born again spiritually. That is, our spirits receive the life that sin had killed. Then our relationship with God was restored. And so through Christ, and only through Christ, were we uh, those who overcame spiritual death and separation from God. Now we must walk in His light to remain alive and close to God. So those who overcome death those who overcome, even as a generality, will not be hurt by then what is called the second death. I'm just here to tell you and remind you, bottom line, Revelation 20, make sure your name is listed in the book of life. If not, make sure that you're right with God, that you're repentant of your sin, and that you walk with God from here on out because it's a reality. You don't want to be you don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Period. And so, my admonition to you tonight as we wrap this up, make sure that you're ready for eternity. It is real. Amen.